Welcome to Blue State Conversations. This is our place to discuss the political theory from all sides, bridging the political divides that split our society. Hey, it's Will Matthew with special guest Liz and our discussion on public health. And today, here's our opening problem. Medical professionals are in the middle of a once in a century situation crisis. COVID has opened up an entire new box of questions about American health and healthcare. What powers should medical professionals have over our lives? Good health is absolutely necessary, but to what extent would that extend to taking children away who aren't vaccinated, for example? And today's question of the show is, who controls your health? Matthew? Yeah, well, I just want to say good morning, Sunday morning to everybody. And introduce our guest here that we have. She has a bachelor's in biology with a focus in pre-health. She's completing her master's in public health this year. She's had three years of research into vector-borne disease. She's been a supervisor for contact tracing with COVID-19 for a year and has been assisting with distribution of the COVID vaccine recently. She also has an internship with an organization helping healthcare workers uh, through the pandemic and was a paraeducator as well. So we would like to welcome Liz to the show. Hi, guys. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Thanks for having me here. This is very exciting. Out of curiosity, how did you get involved with doing the COVID contact tracing? It was actually through a class. One of my classes at my university focused on what case investigation entails. And when the pandemic broke out, We sort of transitioned from looking at enteric diseases or gastrointestinal disease, things like salmonella, campylobacter, those kinds of illnesses. We transferred our skills of looking at those ones over to COVID and ended up developing databases and a system and scripts for calling and even working with our state health department. So I started off primarily making calls and speaking with people. A lot of people thought that I was a robot caller, not going to (laughs) lie. And I had to be like, no, I'm, I'm really here. <laughs> and then as the pandemic unfortunately spread and case numbers skyrocketed, we ended up bringing a lot more people onto the efforts. And then I became in charge of things like helping train new volunteers and getting people used to the system and then logging information into medical databases. So now I'm a supervisor. I still occasionally make calls, but um, I'm primarily in charge of other people. Wow. Well, thanks for all the work you're doing. It's, it's definitely helping. Thanks. <laughs> so I think the first question that we just have is, is what is public health? Right. And I, I feel like I should know a more concrete definition of this, considering I'm getting my master's degree in it. But essentially, public health is, I would consider it at least a bit more generic or broad reaching than like health as you would view it going to a doctor's office. So public health includes a couple of things, and I think the best way to describe it is explaining what prevention really means, because public health is all about prevention. If you don't have to be sick in the first place, you save not only like a person's quality of life for greater periods of time, but you also end up saving money for the system in general. It is much cheaper to help someone prevent an illness in general than to treat it later on. So prevention has a couple of different levels. We've got all the way from primary up through tertiary, but essentially there's different levels of prevention. There's personal actions, there's levels of treatment, 
And then there's also levels of if you cannot actually cure someone of whatever um, illness or predicament they have, then we would call that just like supportive care and trying to improve quality of life. But public health encompasses more than just going to the doctor. It's things like a smoking prevention or smoking intervention programs in high schools that would be considered public health. Because if you prevent people from becoming smokers in the first place, that means that later on, you don't have to be doing treatments for lung cancer, for example. So it encompasses a lot more than the strictly medical world, if that makes sense. So in that way, it's more broad and it's gotten more of a bird's eye view. Where would I find public health officials? Like where, where are places that I wouldn't expect? Because I think that's what people will be asking because they know doctor, they know their referrals, they, they know that system. But where would I find public health officials? They're in a lot of different places. Uh, like waste management has a lot of oversight from public health. Actually, one thing, one of my professors back in college, when she was getting into public health work and veterinary work, she ended up working for a local health department doing swimming pool inspections. So her job was to drive from swimming pool to swimming pool at different days and times and take samples of their water and bring them back to a lab for testing so they could see if they had appropriate levels of certain cleaning chemicals, bacteria, etc. So your swimming pools get monitored and you might not expect it, (laughs) (laughs) but they do. Hospitals also have things, obviously you imagine that a hospital would, but I didn't even think about this until a while back, but infections prevention specialists are a really big deal in hospitals because of what are called nosocomial infections or hospital-borne diseases. So there's a lot of places that it reaches that you wouldn't think. Yeah, because I know for most people when they hear public health, they just automatically think my doctor and the doctors that I go see when I have a specialty need. They're not thinking about it. I know I'm definitely not always thinking about where there could be a public health official. I looked up public health just to see, like, what does Google say about what public health is? And I read their definition. I'm just going to read it quickly because the first thing I thought of was just my doctor. And it says, public health is the science of protecting and improving the health of people and their communities. The work is achieved by promoting healthy lifestyles, researching diseases and injury prevention and detecting and preventing and responding to infectious diseases. And I'm just like, this sounds perfect for, like, you know, having a pandemic that's literally an infectious disease relative to any other time if I had read this, I would have just thought, this is me going to see my doctor every, what, every year for an annual physical. Mm -hmm. Public health goes beyond infectious diseases, though. My particular area of interest is infectious disease, but there's a whole branch of it. There's environmental and occupational health. So I'm forgetting the name of the exact place, but if you look up things like chemical disasters, basically, there are a bunch of and they're, they're tragic, but fascinating in their own way of examples of like chemical disasters that did not have adequate public health Ooh. oversight. The one I'm thinking of, if it's Bhopal, India, B-H-O-P-A-L, India, they had a chemical plant there and they had a public health person who was recognizing that there were a lot of issues with the way that this plant was being taken care of and reporting systems and they didn't have an emergency plan in particular for if something went wrong. Yikes. Well, when something did go wrong, all of a sudden, the, there, and there was a local town nearby that had not been informed of any emergency procedures. And so these people in the town nearby were all of a sudden faced with a very, very dangerous toxic gas that would cling to the ground. It was heavier than air. And so 
what people should have been doing that would have saved a lot of lives would be running down towels, cover oh. up gaps in their doors. Running actually is what they did, but that ended up with a lot of children dying because they I had see. the heaviest concentration, the toxic fumes that they were going through. Mm-hmm. And then they've had like myriad of health concerns lasting for generations ever since then. Wow. So it, while my focus is infectious disease, it has a lot of applications in the workplace for chemical and also just basic mechanical workplaces too. Occupational health is definitely considered to be a part of public health. So I think the question we hear is, we, we hear the words like pandemic, outbreak, and we want to go, well, is there a difference? What makes something a pandemic? Right? Because there's, there's right. diseases all over the place. What's a pandemic? So first off, before I go into like what makes a pandemic different from an epidemic or whatever, the first thing that I think is useful to know is the term emerging disease. So there mm. are plenty of diseases that we already know about. If I talk about Ebola, you know what that is. If I talk about the common flu, you know what that is. If I talk about something like chickenpox, you know what that is. Those are not new diseases. When something new shows up that we have never encountered, we call that an emerging disease. Our current pandemic situation with SARS-CoV-2 or the disease COVID-19 is unfortunately a very real example that we can all point to. It is similar to other viruses that we have seen in the recent past, but it is considered a novel coronavirus. And one thing to just keep in mind when you have an emerging disease is that we call the population is completely susceptible to that. What that means is if you've, like as a child, I had chickenpox. That Mm. means that if I am ever going to encounter chickenpox again, because of that particular virus, it's a herpes virus family, I will not get chickenpox again because I've already been exposed. I am not considered a susceptible population. Of course, there's something like shingles where you could still get it, but it's different. Yes, and that's the effect of the virus as like when you're an adult. So Mm -hmm. with, with that caveat, but essentially like, or a different example, I've had my polio vaccine as a kid. So I am not considered susceptible to polio, which is eradicated in most parts of the world, but not everywhere. It's making a comeback in some areas. Whereas with something that is brand new, we are all considered susceptible. We have not had previous exposure. We have not, well, up until recently, not had a chance to have the vaccine beforehand. So when you have a novel virus or bacteria or whatever you may have, Mm. an entire global population (laughs) where none of us have had it before, that it gives it a really big opportunity to spread, which is very unfortunate, but that's what we saw. So you can have outbreaks or epidemics that are not from a novel disease, but that is what we did see with this pandemic. So if you've heard the term like epicenter in relation to an earthquake, that's a really good way to think about things. For an epidemic, that means that at one particular location, or it could be like a really small location, or it could be just like localized to one country or one state or something. That would be considered an epidemic if there's an outbreak in that sort of localized area. Once an outbreak starts to travel between continents, that's when we start calling it a pandemic. So an outbreak is local, pandemic is more global. Yeah, and I, I would consider outbreak smaller. We, we would say like epidemic and then pandemic. We, use, we tend to use the word epidemic a bit more just because it's, it's, it's more scientifically accurate, but most people are going to think of it as outbreak. So... Most people, obviously, we, you, we just had this example, right? I said pandemic and you said epidemic. So most people are going to get information about new diseases or these outbreaks 
there's studies, there's trials, there's medical information. They're going to get them from news sources because honestly, people just don't have the time to read full scholarly articles. And I know, and part of the point of this show is discussing things in such a way that people can easily figure out how to get the information they need, then use it, right? So that, because if if I've got an hour in the car and I'm just listening to podcasts, how can I tell the stuff I need to go check out or if something's been... So the question that I have is, how can we sort out real medical analysis in a news source from bad analysis? I will be honest and say that I have a hard time knowing exactly how much to trust certain news sources. I would say that my best tip with that, look for news sources that are generally more neutral than not. Like regardless of whatever political leaning you have, try to find something that is not from just your political leaning when you're looking for things. I think that's a fair enough recommendation for almost anything. Don't just look within your echo chamber. I'm always the biggest fan, though, of actually taking the time to listen to experts, try to read the information as it's actually given within the scientific community as much as you can. Now, that being said, I recognize people are not always going to have time for that. Not a lot of people are going to have the scientific background to fully understand that. That's one part of my internship right now is we're actually going through a lot of information regarding the vaccine, the virus, the pandemic, everything. And we are trying to go through and create sets of slides that a person who does not have medical or scientific training could read through these slides and begin to understand what a lot of these terms mean and how to read a graph and and that sort of thing. So in a way, I would say that Keep your eye out for that kind of information. Make sure that it's from qualified sources. So make sure that the information actually comes from a medical journal or from something. And it's not like an analysis of something. It's not an analysis of an analysis of an analysis. I mean, yeah. And sometimes an analysis can be fine. Just make sure that the people that like look into the people who write things. Like if you're listening to Jimmy McGee, who took a biology class once and remembers mitosis and meiosis and then went off to do furniture sales for 12 years. Probably not your best bet. (laughs) He's not an epidemiologist. So, and sometimes it's going to be faulty. Like there are sometimes things that are published and they're scientific articles and they have a really, really small sample size. And that's not necessarily generalizable to everybody. Results need to be verified in multiple places. One challenge that we're having with a lot of stuff with the pandemic is we have a lot of things that are called preprints which means they have not gone through the full vetting process yet. Mm. But I mean, like it's as good as it can be because we're in a pandemic situation and we just frankly need information out there so that we can work on it. Later, we will have time to go through and have those. We have, there's an entire process for having things. Um, Scholarly articles have a a thorough vetting process, but we do a shortened version of that for preprints. And there's just the acknowledgement that it has not had that full process yet. Well, because you'll often hear somebody cite an article and then the article is talking about a study and the study is really very preliminary. They're conducting more testing. They're just saying, hey, we just have this theory that is being reported on as if that's the case. That's the fact. This this is the new scientific fact (laughs) of the decade. So that's the thing that I think people are thinking of. How can I avoid that? Yeah. And one other one quick example that I want to give is when the vaccine started to be rolled out in the UK, there were a few.
few employees at a particular place that had allergic reactions. They were not anaphylactic reactions. They were anaphylactoid, which is less severe, and everything was fine. So basically what happened is these people did have these allergic reactions. They were a bit bigger reactions than most people are going to have. And what happened was the news reports turned a few people who already had to carry EpiPens around in their own daily life so they already had extremely strong allergic proclivities, basically. The media reported it as anybody who has allergies needs to be very concerned that this is going to happen to them. So keep an eye on the reporting. Look at the information. Think about it critically. To be honest, like, and I can't fully blame them, except I'm really pissed off at them a lot for this. Bigger headlines sell. If they find out something that's fancy and special, like, double check, if this is happening, like, I don't want to sound insensitive because any person who gets hurt or injured or feels really crappy or if anyone were to pass away, which I don't, I don't, I don't think we've really had any vaccine-related deaths or anything, but I don't want to minimize anything like that should it happen. But the fact is, we are looking at a bit of a numbers game. If we have thousands and thousands of people who have been given these different medications or vaccines or whatever, and we have a few small instances of a severe reaction of some sort, keep in mind that context. The context is that it's a few people to millions. Right. It is not billions. a common side effect. It is not something that a majority of people are going to have to worry about if they're going to interact with it. It's So media is going to report it more generally. They may not say, oh, you don't need to worry about this. They might just say, allergies instead of severe allergies because they know that a bigger headline is going to sell a shorter headline too. Yeah, it's shorter. And they know that when people see allergies, almost everybody's got an allergy of some kind. So everyone's going to go. So you, you just ended up with your clickbait, I guess is what it would be. Yeah. And I know one of the things that you particularly like talking about is harm reduction. Right? So I'm not familiar with that. So can you tell us what harm reduction is? Sure. Before I do that, have you guys heard of things like safe needle sites? Have you guys heard of those before? Tell us more. Yes. I okay. have not. <laughs> okay. So okay, that's that was going to be my primary example, or at least one of them. So I mentioned pre prevention a little bit earlier. When prevention is not possible, we have this idea of something called harm reduction. So if I'm going to, the example I want to use right now is intravenous drug users or people who use injectable drugs. There's a lot of illnesses and diseases that can come from this, like hepatitis C is one that can be spread through needle sharing and HIV AIDS as well. And there's many, many others. But essentially, if you're using drugs and you're sharing a needle with somebody else, bloodborne pathogens can very easily get transferred directly from person to person. It's really not good. And a lot of these diseases are very severe and can lead to significantly shortened lifespans. So the idea of harm reduction is if we cannot fully stop the behavior that is like causing harm or spreading the disease, we can at least make it a little bit safer and prevent more people from contracting an illness. So in the example of IV drug users, what they have devised is a series of what they're calling, I believe the term is a safe needle site. It might be something slightly variated from that. But the idea is if we can't stop somebody from injecting a drug, what we can do is give them a safe place to dispose of their old needle and get a new one that's clean 
so that at the very least, they're not going to pass their needle off to somebody else and potentially give them a bloodborne pathogen. And they will not be contracting a bloodborne pathogen from somebody else. Wow, that's really dark, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you want a slightly less... <laughs> no, 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 it was just one of those things where I was like, oh my goodness. Well, I was literally sitting here going, she's talking about drugs, right? She's talking about drugs. And then I was like, okay, she's talking about drugs. Okay, it makes sense. Oh, yeah. yeah. And- <laughs> I was like, who's going around like ejecting people? Oh, right. Drug users. Okay, I can yeah, understand they, now. They- when we talk about at-risk populations, I, you know, I've been in the public health world for a while. I don't think <laughs> that this is not normal conversation. Um, well, you had a question, Matthew? What's up? Yeah, no, because now obviously this this is kind of why I find what you're talking about here to be very important because mm-hmm. this obviously would clash with somebody more towards my set of beliefs that this is an enabling action. But you would say that we're reducing harm in general, so yep. it's it's good policy. Whereas I would say, hey, enabling somebody addiction is not good. So I guess kind of the question for a lot of people would be what actually reduces the harm if somebody's continuing to make poor choices? How how is that actually helping? Right. And actually, I want to be perfectly upfront. I've described harm reduction and I've heard from a lot of people, like I've spoken with nurses who've done things like Peace Corps and just intervention programs in various parts of the country or in other countries. And another good example that's a lot less dark is things like teen pregnancy. Harm reduction mm-hmm. activities would be things like birth uh, control, giving, making it available. Yeah, birth control and some mm-hmm. and a lot of times that will include doing things without parental consent because they know that the parents will not approve of birth control. I want to be upfront. I understand harm reduction and that it has a good record. I am not sure if I am ethically on board with it. And least certain cases. I'm not like 100%, oh, harm reduction, 100%, let's go. Because a lot of efforts with harm reduction are going to depend on how you define the problem. If you're looking at teen pregnancy, is the problem that, oh, well, teens are going to have sex anyway, so you just need to make sure that they have proper protection. Or is the problem, our teens are having sex, what the heck? (laughs) What happened? (laughs) Like, the problem that you define is going to define your solution. And I'm not 100% that I don't like the idea of just handing out a bunch of birth control to teenagers and doing the whole, well, you're going to do it anyway. So at the same time, if there's someone that we've tried to encourage different behaviors and we want them to be safer and we know that their behavior isn't going to change, but we're genuinely concerned about them at that point, I can see trying to do a little bit of harm reduction, but I don't want to pretend that it's a cut and dry issue for me personally. I understand that overall the policies tend to have good success rates, but I think that there's some conflict or at least some confusion between things because we all have different values. A harm reduction program, another one that I've talked to people a lot about is this one about teen pregnancy. And if they're talking about areas that are like extremely culturally Catholic, for example, like a lot of Hispanic communities or predominantly Hispanic communities, they're going to have a very strong Catholic background and be very traditional in that kind of a way, which I'm personally totally on board with. I am grateful that, like, until I was in a public high school setting, nobody ever made fun of me for saying, yeah, I'm going to be abstinent. (laughs) Then I got to public high school, and they treated it like a joke, which that's a story from another time. But 
when you talk with professionals who've done like teen pregnancy interventions in these areas, what they tell you is these kids have been told abstinence only their whole lives and they're just not doing it. So that type of education is not working. So at the very least, if they're going to be running around having sex and you can't stop them from that because abstinence only teaching didn't work, then at least we can give them these other things so they don't become teen parents and drop out of school. And that's really hard for me because I think that there needs to be a combination of both. And I think that sometimes interventions will either be abstinence only and never acknowledge that people will do otherwise. And sometimes they'll go straight for the extreme version of harm reduction and not try to actually, like truly encourage and help kids understand the real impact of their decision. I guess what I'm kind of hearing would be that it can become myopic in focus of this number is too high, too low. So when that number gets to the right stage, whatever that is, then we solve the problem. Whatever we have to do to get there is fine. Another example I had is I remember going in and I had, I was getting a MRI done of my shoulder because I possibly had a torn labrum and I'm sitting in there, you know, the doctor, you know, what's your name? How old are you? Okay. Do you have any guns in your house? Going, guns in my house? What, what do you mean guns in my house? Why are you asking me that? Does my shoulder like need to be fixed with one? Why, why would you <laughs> need to know that? And that question kind of shocked me. And then it, it turns out that it's part of the program to figure out if they're just tracking who has firearms in their house. And, you know, when I asked why, they go, well, we just want to, if there's an abusive parent, we can find out if there are guns in the house, and then that would be cause to remove the kid. It's like, well, that's a little bit of an invasion of my rights. That's, a, <laughs> But it comes under that guise of, hey, we're reducing harm, right? If he, if he has a gun in the house and he's abusing the kids, there's a heightened level of danger. So we're trying to reduce the possible harm. Well, one other thing is they were upfront about you. They didn't refuse to tell you why they were asking that. Did They, they, they actually did. I had a doctor kind of off the record explain me why they were doing it. Oh. <laughs> the doctor who said it. Yeah, the doctor who said it to me when I said, why? I said, no, and why are you asking me? And the person goes, I have to. And I said, oh, but what's the purpose of it? She goes, ah, the doctor can tell you. And then I asked the doctor and she goes, that's ah, something we ask. And I was like, something we ask? How's the weather up there? Yeah, something sure. people ask me, you know, like, because <laughs> so I guess the question for a lot of people is, should non-medical information about their patients be collected by doctors? I think that the example with firearms is complicated. I'll be honest, this is the first time I've ever heard of a doctor's office collecting that kind of information. There are some kinds of non-medical information that I think it is reasonable to ask about. And one thing that I do whenever we're doing contact tracing is if someone is not willing to provide a certain bit of information, like I can't force them to. So I don't know exactly how that would apply to your situation with the firearms. That's very strange to me. But there, yeah. there are situations where I can understand, like if you're asking about levels of stress and like how well do you sleep and a couple of other things, that doesn't, I don't know if that qualifies as like the kind of non-medical questions you're talking about, but I'll be honest, I'm completely thrown off by a doctor asking about guns. <laughs> I think the most common one that I've run into is a lot with my wife is when we're like out and we were at a hospital together and they asked like, are you, do you feel safe at home? Which I always found is like yep, a weird question to ask because I'm in the room. You're concerned about <laughs> me, but like you yeah. don't ask me to leave when I'm there when you, you ask her this question. Part of that is actually from a behavioral standpoint, since um, I do have some background in security. 
they want to see her reaction with you in the room. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Because if she reacts weirdly, then they have some. Then they suddenly have cause as opposed to just passing on saying, no, okay. It's usually people who are safe at home. They're very comfortable answering the question. People who are that not. That makes sense. They, yeah. The only reason we'd be uncomfortable is because we're just like, this is a weird question to ask, period. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. <laughs> but usually both of you will have like the, a similar reaction if like, you know, she reacts by like side-eyeing you and you react by like taking a power stance. And the doctor might go, all right, well, something's here. Dun, dun, dun. Right. Right. Right off from my back pocket, just like extends. <laughs> we're out of here. And then, you know, the big question that everybody kind of has on their mind who controls health decisions? That's a really good question. I'm going to mention an article. I'm not going to recommend it. <laughs> Interesting. 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 So there is an article that everyone who goes through my health program ends up reading. And I, I can't remember the author's name, but I, I don't think it would be very difficult to find it. There was a person who went through and tried to do an analysis of just that. Like, what percentage of preventable deaths could be really just fully attributed to individual decisions as opposed to like conditions around a person. And what it turned into was this guy basically telling people, and you can read it for yourself and come to your own conclusions. If you end up agreeing with him, like it's not that he has no data. I don't want to trash on it. I do not find it convincing. So I'm not going to pretend that I do. I think that there are some good points in there, but overall I do favor a different perspective. But he goes through and starts talking about how pretty much like if you have issues with obesity, that's all because of personal decisions. If you have issues with whatever, like this chronic health thing or that chronic health thing, he even points to suicide as a personal decision kind of thing. And while to some degree, yes, he's right, and I, I just find it a bit insensitive to talk about suicide, I realize that there are personal con decisions involved in that, obviously. But it comes across as very insensitive and not helpful to people who are struggling and I do not think it is the most helpful way of looking at things. That being said there are other perspectives about where does your good health or your bad health come from. Personal decisions do have to be part of that. I feel that in this country because we have a very individualistic focus we tend to forget the, the conditions around us and that's a perspective we call social determinants of health. If you go too far on this then you get to the area the perspective of I was born into this crappy neighborhood, therefore I can never rise out of it. Mm. But taken properly hand in hand with understanding individual decisions, it's a very healthy way of looking at things. So I personally believe that we all have agency and we can all make impacts on our health decisions. I believe that some communities and situations make it really hard for those personal decisions to have an effect. Yeah, I know a lot of times it's that mix of environmental versus personal. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll, you'll hear the comedians joke about it like, hey, there are some people who have a condition and that's why they're 300 pounds. And then he said, and other people have the condition of they didn't put the cake down. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, you, you kind of get, <laughs> get that mix together. And then how much of that is which? Then on top of that, you have the, I, yes, I'm medically obese. However, doctors need to stop talking about that. Doctors need, you get all of that sort of thing. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this kind of the area where we can get into something called paternalism, which I think you have some interesting views on? So I, I, I do want to make sure that we're clear. Can we define paternalism before we ask a question about it? <laughs> yeah. 
So I was not familiar with paternalism before going through my health program because we talk about a lot of different types of health interventions. It's not always just showing up on site and giving out vaccines or something. Sometimes they're education programs, sometimes they're this, sometimes they're that. So paternalistic ideas in general. So if you remember, so when I just described like the extreme individualism versus the extreme version of social determinants of health, paternalism goes in hand with the extreme version of the social determinants of health. It's the view that if everything is determined by the area around you, then like your personal decisions are not especially meaningful. Therefore, we will make good decisions for you. Yeah, it's a very Woodrow Wilson sort of thing to do. He, his approach to just governing and health policy, everything was that the experts will decide. You know, they, they have the experience, the knowledge, and they will inform you the best way to live. If you don't do that, then, you know, something wrong with you because you didn't listen to the experts. Right. And I think that there can be really good applications of paternalism, and there are some potentially problematic ones. There is a paternalistic health and particularly traffic and safety one that you guys deal with on a very regular basis. You just might not realize it. Can you guess what it is? Seatbelts. That is a paternalistic health intervention. They have become mandated by law. You can get fined for it. And they have demonstrated health benefits in the vast majority of cases. There's only a very few cases where having a seatbelt can cause you harm. And that's considered a paternalistic health procedure or health policy. So the question then becomes something like, in other situations, is having the government or state or whatever whatever law agency, at what point should they be making those policies and making those decisions for you versus allowing you to make more individual decisions? And I believe that that can be more complicated and require uh, a lot more deliberation. And it's not simple. <laughs> it's not fair. So why is it, I guess, why is it like a big deal? Is it just because it, it's being used by government? So it, it's something that does intrude on your life. So the applications of this and people's use of this is something that people should be caring about. I would agree. And then one example, and I'm not especially well versed on how insurance works. So I don't want to pretend to be an expert on that. But with everything that's been happening since the days of Obama being president, with him introducing the Affordable Care Act. That's something that we talk about really frequently in my public health program. And I want to see everybody have coverage. I want to see people healthy. I'm personally, uh, just to be perfectly frank, I'm personally less concerned about the exact method that happens with. I just want to find out whatever works. So I'm not married to one ideology over another in this regard. I just want to see people doing okay. So I don't have a vested interest in one way or another. But one example of paternalistic concerns, in my understanding, was the Affordable Care Act, because all of a sudden it was telling people, you have these options, you need to choose from one of these, Mm -hmm. everyone has to choose from one of these. If you don't want it, well, these are your options. Yeah, healthcare, yeah, it's sort of, you know, healthcare or healthcare are your choices. Yeah, there was no, no healthcare. So I guess that leads us to a question that everybody asks in any social science, but it extends to the medical field, which is just, do people make good choices on average? Um. <laughs> Sounds like no. <laughs> 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 I, I 
appears we have the answer right off the bat. Wow. <laughs> I, I think it's funny because it's like not cynical at all about no. about humans and their their the choices that they make. <laughs> I have stories uh. to tell. <laughs> um, right. I guess I guess a better way is do do people do risk calculation well? That could be a better question, maybe. But do they even attempt it? I think that this pandemic has made me a lot it has made me cynical in some ways. I've also I also want to say that in working with vaccine distribution, I work as a medical scribe there, so I work with vaccinators and get people's information into the medical system as they receive their shots. That has been extremely fulfilling and really comforting because I'm seeing the people that have been taking active steps to do good mm. things and to try to be safe during this pandemic. The majority of people, I think I've come across one anti-mask person in that entire, like in my entire, like well over a month now of doing this work. And he wasn't the one getting the vaccine. He was driving his mom to get her vaccine. And he- so not a shocker. Yeah. So it was out of everybody that I've worked with at that particular place, I've come across like one person who really was not taking steps and refused to take good steps. Mm. So I don't want to make it sound like everybody is terrible and stupid and just like their brain cells don't exist. But at the same time, I've been doing contact tracing for a long time now. And well, and I have some funny stories from there. <laughs> and I also have, I mean, but it's ultimately not especially funny. Like, <laughs> It's funny in spite of poor choices. Yeah. yeah. And like one of my parents' cousins actually did pass away from COVID. So mm. I wasn't very close with this person who passed away. But like when your mom calls you to tell you that she just found out that one of her, her best friends like <laughs> passed away and they sick like mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to not take the pandemic seriously so that's my context for why i take it as seriously as i do among other things but when you have to be on a contact tracing call and ask someone why they went to a fraternity open house during a pandemic it makes you wonder if people really do that much risk assessment granted that's in like a college or university setting so i don't want to make that sound like that's absolutely everybody I think people do the best that they can a lot of times, but a lot of it's going to depend on what information they're listening to. And I realize that people have been confused. One thing that I also just wanted to highlight real quick is just that this pandemic has shown us the scientific process in real time. Have you guys in like basic science classes in like high school, they always tell you about like the scientific method. You guys mm-hmm. remember learning about that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We talk about like you, you have a question and you generate a hypothesis. Then you go through process of creating an experiment you have your methods you Mm -hmm. come with theories yeah you you gather data you look at your results and then you come up with conclusions and you see "Mm, was i right was i wrong do i need to revise my hypothesis and then you do it again and again and again oh yes it's a very repetitive process vicious cycle so what's happened throughout this pandemic is that because this virus has been brand new it's got some similarities to other viruses that we've dealt with recent past um, uh, SARS and MERS come to mind, but we haven't faced a pandemic of this of this scale in like a hundred years. The last time we had this was like the Spanish flu, and we didn't have the same levels of tools and communication for documenting things in the same way, so this is this still feels pretty largely new. People have been confused about exactly what to do during this pandemic because the information has been evolving, and in the interest of mm-hmm openness and honesty, 
people have been getting information as we get it in the scientific community. The thing is, because of how science works, information changes based on what we understand at the time. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't think that, like I remember I worked in a, I volunteered at a call center very early on, taking calls from people who are concerned about it. And they're saying, I have a runny nose, do I need to be concerned? At that time, the answer was, no, a runny nose is not associated with COVID as far as we know. Now that is a symptom that we know is associated. But at the time, we did not know that just because it was too early and we were still gathering data. Does that mean that science was wrong or that the scientific community was trying to lie to people? No, it just means that we didn't know. And we corrected ourselves later. So I, I would hope that people can have, like not to pretend that every single thing is like perfectly peachy and yada yada, have a dose of realism, but understand that we're doing our best to keep up with the information as it comes there. So I realize it's a bit of a tangent from your question about... No, I mean, you know, a question that I did have for you was that when medical officials are wrong, because, you know, as you said, you get the information, but there's also sometimes wrong decisions have been made by certain people or things like that. I, like there was, you know, they, they make a decision based on their evidence or they make the wrong call or something like that. However it is, when, they're, when they end up being wrong, how do you keep people's trust? Because the trust is what's going to make people want to do what you're, what you're trying to get them to do. Right. Trust is a key factor. And I think, I mean, that's actually, I, I have a whole, one whole interesting thing is when you talk with um, minority populations that, and we're like, we have like a high percentage of caregivers in certainly Southwestern states of the United States They'll be like Hispanic. That's like a very large population for like healthcare workers in that. In those, like there's a few couple states like like Southern California, Arizona, parts of Nevada, etc. Those kind those populations are going to be very hesitant to do things like taking the vaccine. And we're working on trying to rebuild this trust because of previous history in the past, even for other things like there have been some populations that, and it's very wrong that this happened in the past. Were kind of treated like guinea pigs for certain procedures so we don't we not only have just the i don't understand what the cdc is saying like why on earth are they switching this thing we don't just have that kind of trust issue to overcome we also have some historical trust issues to overcome as well so there's a lot of ground that needs to be made up for in that regard but as far as restoring trust i think the best that we can do is what we're trying to do is we're trying to get information out there. We're trying to help people understand why we have said and done the things that we have. We're trying to be active in the communities. Like whenever we give people a vaccine, we're handing them a lollipop and a sticker. It sounds silly, <laughs> but people, it's like, it's like people, I can't tell you how many people just like their faces light up. And I'm talking about like old, like elderly people too. <laughs> well, it's like the voting stickers. It's good. You know, lets people know. Yeah, it gets people involved and makes them feel like they are a part of the process because public health is I mean, it's part of the word, public. It's not something that we can just do from our cubicle somewhere or like if some epidemiologist is in a corner crunching data somewhere, that's not going to impact the people. We want the people to be involved. So public health, we're, we try to be as transparent as we're able to. We want people involved and that's why we're trying to move toward community-based approaches where we're trying to really engage with people at a community level instead of just being like supreme overlord public health person over here has passed a decree and now you must all agree or be banished like we're trying to have that more community 
community level intervention so people can really be a part of everything. I don't know. I think it's going to take some time and I think it's going to take me having more time working in the field to really understand what it's going to take to fully restore public confidence. I think that part of that is like there's a really high preponderance of it's really sad to me that there's so many conspiracy theories out there right now. I think in a lot of ways, just because of how health has been presented over the past, like even 10 years or so, I think that health has been in some ways turned into a political opinion. Whereas I think there's a lot more bipartisan cooperation that could be achieved with it. I think that once people can start separating health from politics, that's going to be a huge step forward with us. And I think this gets complicated again because each political side has its own way of wanting to approach things. But if we can if we can actually work toward that common ground, I think that once it stops feeling like a political issue, we're going to make much better progress. Yeah. So I mean, to follow that up with a political question, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what level of disease requires removal of freedom or adding restrictions mm-hmm. to something that's not like you know? There's currently the huge mass debates. You know. Should government be dictating a mask or should it be something that somebody wears? You know, another example would be there was a huge thing in California where AIDS, people who were positive for HIV AIDS needed to inform their partners and then that was removed. You no longer needed to inform them for that. However, at the same time, you can have like a chickenpox party where you are intentionally infecting people with diseases. But that's like, that's not like illegal. You know, you know, that's, you can do that. And some people actually consider it good parenting. So, in your opinion, at what level is it where we need to start thinking about, hey, we're going to start taking away some freedoms here temporarily? Yeah, and this is going to be fully my own opinion. I'm not going to even pretend to speak for all of public health on this one because there's so much going on there. I'm not going to try to pretend that I speak for anyone but myself here. I do support to at least some degree, I I believe that living in a society, you have some things that are important to give up freedom-wise. Like, that sounds really dramatic. What I really mean is wear your mask. It's not hard. It works. Wear your mask and get other people to wear them around you as well. I do not agree with lifting mask mandates. I personally, and I I know that many of, actually probably all of my colleagues, think it is monumentally stupid for Texas to reopen the way that they have. We all want reopening to happen, but this is not the correct way. That's a whole other issue. I don't want to get into that. But the, the fact is, like, there's, just, just for the record, public health is not against reopening. We are against reopening in a way that is going to get people hurt. We're trying to figure out the best way and just be patient with us. We're doing our best. We recognize it's hard for people to not be at work. So in, in terms of that, like, you know, you're not being stopped from wearing your mask. You know, it's just simply the government is no longer mandating that. And that's, but that's the thing though, people are not wearing their mask. Like I live near a large public university. It's the one that I attend. And so I generally will walk from slightly off campus to on campus to get to my job at the vaccination site that I work at. And so I will walk past groups of people that as soon as they're off campus, all of their, like the campus is requiring things like to wear a mask if you're going to be if you can't social distance from people you need to wear a mask only take it off if you're like actively eating or drinking something then put it back on the university 
even gave everybody masks with the university logo just so that everybody could say, I have a mask. Mm -hmm. Like, washable, reusable ones. So the university has taken a lot bigger steps and they're kind of leading the fight for the area with a lot of these efforts. The moment you go off campus where that is not required, you see people walking around with no masks and they're very close to each other. And having done contact tracing and having contacted like people who live in settings like in the case of like a university, it could be like a sorority house or fraternity house. I've seen outbreaks in apartment complexes. I've seen outbreaks in these areas. Like it's the same kind of thing. Like it becomes the question of if you don't mandate something or if you don't say that something is legal or illegal, is that going to really impact how often people do that action? I believe that legality does have a very strong impact on people's behavior. Like, I think that a really good example is when states legalized marijuana. There were already people who were going to be smoking marijuana. That was never going to change. Legalizing it, though, all of a sudden you have way more people smoking it or ingesting it recreationally. And you can make arguments for whether or not that's good or bad. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is the legality of it increased the behavior. Mm-hmm. So if it's legal to not wear your mask, I have, like, from what I have seen and experienced and talked to people about, specifically in the context of the pandemic, for a year now, when we give people their second dose of vaccine, we still tell them, you still need to be wearing a mask even after your vaccine has reached full effectiveness, because the vaccine's primary goal is to prevent severe symptoms. We're still waiting on research to see exactly how much it will affect rates of transmission, you could potentially still get infected and pass it on to someone else and just not feel as sick, which is really important because those severe symptoms are what kill people. Mm -hmm. But people will not wear a mask unless they're told that they need to. I have some friends down in Texas who were telling me that they they had to figure out real quick whether or not the main grocer there, H-E-B, what their standing was. And their standing is still, of course, to wear a mask because That's the most dangerous thing most of us are doing these days is going to buy our groceries. But even to your point, if it's not mandated by the government, then there are going to be people that go into HEB and buy groceries without wearing masks in close proximity to other people. And it would be up to the store, the employees specifically, to walk up to people and say, "Uh, excuse me, it's our policy that you wear a mask. And I was in a store buying some clothing the other day, and they had somebody you you know, in Ohio, they had somebody there at the front saying, hey, Please make sure you're wearing a mask, including um, cover that covers your nose. That's our store policy. I need to preface: this was not me. They were telling this to it was somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's it's very interesting how like times change. Where like that's how stores now like they're they're starting to handle it by putting somebody at the front to tell people this is our store policy, and if you are not going to follow it, you must leave. Which you know, I feel like that's probably the best thing they can do, especially when. The state itself isn't going to mandate it because freedom. Right. It's going to be, I think it's very challenging for individual employees or individual businesses. It's going to be very difficult for them to mandate certain things because in theory, it should just work that if you're not going to wear a mask, you can't shop here. Some people are like, okay, fine, I'll shop somewhere else. But people seem to be under the mindset of, no, I want to shop here, therefore you cannot stop me from shopping here. I don't care what your fault is. But of course it's the stores, like it's their lawful right to not yeah, the store The store can call the police on them for enforcing their policies. That's right. You know, if, if there, for example, in Massachusetts, you can 
ban somebody from coming in from carrying a gun. However, there is no force of law to say that the person cannot carry a gun into the store. However, if the store finds you with one, they are able to say, we are going to reject service to you and, and you need to leave. And if you don't leave, they can call the police for trespassing. That's how they can enforce it. So that would be kind of, so that I guess that's kind of like the question I think I have is kind of at what level should it move on from just the store enforcing their policies to the sort of the government needs to enforce this? Like, where's that level? Most of my examples are all pandemic related. Sorry to talk your ear off about it. <laughs> I'm not going to go and be like, the government needs to mandate vaccinations for everybody. I don't think that's going to go over well. I don't know what the legal or ethical implications of that are going to be. I do think this country has a massive problem with like an, with the anti-vaccination crowd. There's a lot of misunderstandings there, and I'd be happy to talk about that another time. But I don't think that we have to go that extreme. I think that it's very reasonable for the government to say masks still need to happen. If people mask up properly, that should remove a lot of these more restrictive measures that have been ha that have needed to be taken. Like if people wear masks regularly, that like if two people are wearing masks and they're next to each other, you have to look. I think the CDC has put out some really good graphics. They have the specific numbers and. And that sort of thing but they they have like little graphics that detail they've done studies if two people are sitting next to each other neither are wearing a mask here's your risk here's like your, your rate of transmission that you can have between these two people if one of them is wearing a mask here's what the rate of transmission looks in each direction if they're both wearing masks here's what the rate of transmission looks like if they're both wearing masks and distancing properly the rate of transmission drops like practically to zero so there we know that masking and distancing work that becomes challenging because there are environments where that's not entirely possible and that's where we have to take more measures into account. But for a lot of circumstances, that works. And for me, I have a really hard time understanding after like when I, I wear a mask for, I, I had like this past Saturday, I had a straight nine hour shift of just constantly doing medical stride work. I wore a mask the entire time except when I had a quick lunch and drank water and Gatorade throughout the day. My ears hurt by the end of that. I wore mm. a mask for nine hours straight. And you know what? It was okay. So I get that it's uncomfortable. I get that people don't like it, but it works. And I think it should be more common. So like, well, then why can't we just mandate masks all the time, right? I think that until the pandemic is over, I think that masks do need to be a thing. I think that there will eventually be either, I'm not especially confident that herd immunity can be reached at this point because there has just the response has been so slow. America has not responded especially well. But one day I hope to see the end of this pandemic era. There's a lot of ways that this could go. I don't want to start predicting things and turn out to be wrong. There's I'm not <laughs> sure how this is gonna end. We'll find out. But one day when the pandemic era is is over, because it it should be over someday, I don't think we'll need to mandate mask wearing for everybody constantly because I think that would be that would be considered unnecessary. I don't think that would fly, but we are still in the midst of the pandemic. The US passed five hundred thousand COVID deaths this past month. Like this is no joke. I think that normalizing something like if you are feeling sick, then yeah, please do wear a mask. So you're not sneezing on people or making it so that people have more protection to work from home. So people have more ability to if I am 
sneezing and sound terrible and my nose is running and I'm constantly sounding like an elephant blowing my nose in the other room. Like, probably shouldn't be at work. There's a lot of people who, for a number of different reasons, do not feel that they have the option to be at home if they are feeling sick. So I'm hoping that this pandemic, more so than normalizing like mandates about masks, what I'm just kind of hoping is that this period of discomfort can inform later policies about keeping people safer. I don't know if that answers your question, though. A little bit more on that. So like I was talking with a couple of teachers just this morning and they were talking about how they've gotten sick a lot less and their kids have gotten sick a lot less in general. And they think it has a lot to do with the fact that they're hand sanitizing, they're washing their hands more often. And they're hoping that in post-pandemic world that people continue to sanitize. Like maybe we're not wearing masks all the time, but maybe there's a hand sanitizer in the room at all times, in every room. And if they think, oh, my hands are dirty, just go get a little bit of hand sanitizer, no problem. And then just continue as usual. And more people might be more thoughtful about keeping their hands clean, cleaning their hands before they you know, touch other people or do other things. Because you know, kids do that. Kids touch a lot of people all the time. And you can't get away from that. But being able to be more thoughtful about your approach as it informs your health and the health of others is something that I don't think people really ever thought about until they're forced into an extra world problem, like a pandemic that hits everyone across the entire world, not even just a country or a singular outbreak, but everyone. Right. And one other thing just to mention, like we've had, I think, technically lower rates of flu reported this year. No, I think, I, think it, I think it answers a lot of people's questions. People have questions about why the flu would drop, but COVID would increase if they transmit the same way. Yeah, so, and I'd have to like find some specific data on this, but I will tell you that we've had, my sister knows a, a nurse in the Pacific Northwest who works specifically with women and heart health. And this person said that, they've, that during this pandemic, they've seen a lot of people avoiding going to appointments and subsequently having worse health come outcomes um, down the line. So out of concern for COVID, people are not going to the doctor. as mm -hmm. So reporting is a big thing. So just because our flu numbers are down, one thing that we ask in epidemiology a lot is why? Just not just, oh, here's the numbers. Yay. It's also why? <laughs> in a pull of Drax, why? <laughs> so the question then becomes, are flu numbers down this year because fewer people are getting the flu? I, I, would, I would hope yes. I think that we're, we've been doing more distancing. But just keep in mind, if someone has flu-like symptoms or something, they may also just not be going to the doctor because they're worried about getting something else. So I would like to hope that flu numbers are going down. I'd have to look at the data, to be honest. I can't remember exactly. But there's a number of reasons why reporting numbers can change. Sometimes it could be a change in how a disease is defined. Even COVID went through that because we figured out what different symptoms looked like and our testing improved over time and got more widespread definitions. So numbers of cases of a disease can really change. If there's, if you ever see like a really dramatic, all of a sudden like stair-step looking change on a graph somewhere, keep in mind there may be a change in a definition or in a testing technique or a reporting method. So it's not entirely clear to me, at least just because I don't know the data, but I would assume that part of it is probably because of lack of reporting of certain things because people are trying to avoid going to the doctors or at least very early on, like people were treating the hospitals like the place you go to die. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> mm -hmm. no, I don't want to go to the hospital even if I'm feeling sick because I don't want to get COVID. But 
other illnesses and other injuries do not stop just because COVID is here. So there are people that need to be seeing medical professionals that have been hesitant to because of COVID. Yeah, I, th- I think it would be something interesting to maybe, you know, have you back on once we've sort of gone past and there's more data and, you know, we can play some armchair generaling. But I think the thing we want to wrap up today with what our goal is, is just, you know, there's a lot of questions about public health. So in your opinion, what, what would you say that public health officials need to do to restore public confidence? And then what does the public need to know about officials who are making these decisions? And I don't want to say this as if it's not already being done, because within my experience, I am seeing this in practice. And that's one reason why I have a high regard for it. Honesty. The people that I have been working with have been incredibly honest with everything that's going on. If someone asks them a question, especially like at the vaccine clinic, I've, like one thing that I think really erodes trust is, is someone saying, oh, it's not going to be that bad. And then it turns out to be terrible. Like, I used to have a dentist, and I'd be like, is this, like, anesthetic injection going to hurt? And they're like, no, you won't feel anything. I felt all of it, and it was really painful. Whereas a different surgeon that I had, he told me that the injection was going to hurt. And I said, thank you for the heads up, and I appreciated that so much. still hurt just as much, but I had a warning of what was going to happen. And that was really important to me personally for having trust in his methods. So... I know that people have had a lot of questions about changing guidelines and a lot of things like that over the course of time, but I would really, public health officials, I think, are being more and more honest and more forthcoming with data as they get it. I think that's extremely important for the public's part. I would say, please, as much as you are able to, have patience with us. Please keep listening. Please don't take changing guidelines as indications of corruption or we're incapable of getting anything right ever. Keep in mind, this is the scientific process that is just social media makes it so that you're seeing all the steps of it instead of the final product. So you are seeing where our hypothesis was wrong. So now we're going back and revising it so we can do better next time. It's not a question of corruption. It's not a question of bad science. It's just this is how science works and people aren't used to seeing it in the public eye. So... And just on behalf of everybody that I've worked with, like we've got people who are out here helping with our like vaccine distribution station. I've seen people that are like, oh yeah, we retired from the medical field a month ago, but since you guys are doing this vaccine stuff, we're still board certified. So yeah, we're here to deliver vaccines. You have so many people within the health field and the public health field um, in general that are showing up to help get back on track. One of my professors showed up at the vaccine site and did medical scribe work alongside me yesterday. Hmm. Just please keep in mind that we are doing our best. We are there for you. And please continue to ask questions. That's totally fine. Questions are not a bad thing. Just please don't assume that because something changes over time, that that's someone trying to take advantage of you. We're, We're doing our best. Well, thank you very much for coming on, and I think it's illuminating about what public health is doing and what it what it's meant to do. And I just want to thank you, Liz, for joining us today. Thank you guys very much for having me. It's very exciting. I mean, the pandemic is not exciting, but being able to help you. <laughs> okay, I, I phrased that terribly. It's very exciting, though, to be able to hopefully help 
people understand a bit more about what's going on. Thanks for listening. And if you have a comment, question, or rant, we'd love to hear it. Email us at bluestateconversations at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find our articles on Medium. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. No matter what state you're in, blue, red, or purple, there is always room at the table to discuss your views in a way that lets us all grow.